Turn your attention this morning to Psalm 119, verses 137 to 144. It's an honor to be here with you this morning and open God's Word together as His body, the church. We are in the midst of a short break from our exposition through the book of Hebrews. Such a blessing last week to hear Ryan walk us through the early life and ministry of Martin Luther as we were recognizing Reformation Sunday and just how rich it was to dwell on the glorious gospel of justification by faith alone. Today, as we've been discussing in the service, it is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church or for persecuted Christians around the world. And as elders, we wanted to continue our break from Hebrews to specifically preach about prayer for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes it can feel like a daunting task to pray for other Christians around the world who are facing intense and sustained suffering for the faith faith in Christ. When approaching prayer for the persecuted church, I often feel overwhelmed by the heartbreaking circumstances that make up the daily lives of so many believers in Christ around the world. I feel a deep desire to help, as I'm sure you do as well, to help those people in some way. But that desire comes with the knowledge that I can do so little to help them. As I consider all the vast needs of the global church, I'm often left feeling discouraged and helpless. I'm so glad that Cole in Sunday school this morning led us through some of the stories and some of the statistics regarding persecution in the church. Oftentimes that's what you'll hear from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, and that's not what we're going to do here today. We're going to turn to God's Word and let Him lead us as we strive to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The graphic and horrific stories of violent persecution are heartbreaking and can cause us to feel some sense of guilt, even, that we are able to gather together like this on a Sunday morning and worship with no real fear of persecution or any repercussions for what we do here today. For myself, and I fear for many of us, feelings of guilt or discouragement keep us from praying for suffering Christians as we should, as we're called to in Scripture's. As Cole pointed out this morning, there are a number of resources to educate yourself on how to pray specifically for the needs of the persecuted church. Uh, We talked about Voice of the Martyrs or uh, the World Watch List through Open Doors Ministries. There's a number of other resources that you can educate yourself with. But this morning, I want us to dwell in the Word of God and reflect on what God has to tell us about prayer and prayer through suffering. Please stand with me now to honor the reading of God's Word. Again, we're going to be in Psalm 119, starting in verse 137 and going through verse 144. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness. 
and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteousness forever. Give me understanding that I may live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed, you may be seated. Today, as we consider praying for the persecuted church, we're going to look at this text using three main points. First, we're going to look at the character of God and His Word. Then we're going to look at the context of suffering in this world. And then we're going to look at a Christian's hope in trouble and anguish. When we think of Psalm 119, we tend to think about the Word of God, and rightly so. This may be a good passage for us to come to when we're emphasizing Bible reading or our need for the Scriptures. So why, when I was asked to talk about prayer for the persecuted church, did I turn to this passage in Psalm 119? First and uh, most obvious is it is a prayer. Each one of these verses we can see is addressed to God. The psalmist is praying. We see that throughout all these verses. Righteous are you, O Lord. Right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies, your words, your promise, your servant, your precepts, your righteousness. Your law is true. Your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. All of this is a prayer directed to God. But there's a lot of prayers in the Bible, so why specifically did I turn to this one? Probably about uh, 18 months, two years ago, we preached through a number of passages from Psalm 119. And I was personally so encouraged, having come out of some times of suffering and being in the midst of times of suffering in my personal life and the life of my family, I was so encouraged by a number of the sermons that Ryan gave, that Jordan gave while he was here, about how we can be comforted through the Word of God in in our grief, in our afflictions, in our suffering. And as I considered praying for the persecuted church, I just wanted us to think about praying along those lines for those who face significant suffering through persecution on a regular basis. How can we pray for them to really be encouraged? It's so important for us to pray specifics for specific countries, specific people, specific needs. But I think it's more important for us to pray biblically for what God teaches us to pray for the church. Since it is a prayer, and I've said the focus is on God and His Word, that is where we're going to start today. If you're taking notes, this is our first point. We want to pray that Christians would have a firm foundation based on the character of God revealed through His Word. 
Look at verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. This may seem like an obvious statement, but when we pray, the focus of our prayers should be on God. As obvious as this may be, it is something that we often forget. It is so easy for us to turn the focus of our prayers on ourselves, on our temporal needs. And this is sometimes even compounded when we think about the persecuted church. We hear the troubling statistics and we hear the tragic stories and we switch into problem-solving mode and jump straight to praying for specific needs. It is good and right that we pray for those needs and make our requests known to God. But we need to keep our focus on God and not get buried and lost in the multitude of our problems or the problems of believers around the world. No matter how extreme the hardships are that people are facing, we must not lose sight of God in it. We see this pattern in the Lord's Prayer as he teaches his disciples to pray. He first praises and acknowledges God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he turns to praying for practical needs, asking for forgiveness and protection from temptation. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As we see in the Lord's Prayer, we also see in this stanza that we are in today in Psalm 119. We root our prayers first in God. The effectiveness of our prayers is not determined by the magnitude of our needs or by the eloquence with which we present those needs. But our prayers are effective because of who we are praying to. Let's specifically look at what our verses here today emphasize about God's character and his word. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. We see a theme develop in these first two verses. Righteousness. The psalmist wants to emphasize that God is righteous. His word is right, and he works in righteousness. Why is this important for the psalmist, and why is it important for us and for persecuted believers? When we look around, especially when we consider the persecuted church, do things seem right or just or virtuous? When we consider Christians being tortured and killed for their faith, we are acutely aware that things in this broken world are not right. But praise be to God that He is righteous. His rules are right, and He has appointed them in righteousness and in all faithfulness. In fact, this theme is repeated two more times in our stanza. If you look down to verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Not only was God righteous in the Old Testament or throughout history, but he is righteous forever, meaning that even right now, in the midst of suffering and persecution, our God is righteous. 
He repeats it again in verse 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. It's almost like this is something that we might tend to forget and need to be reminded of repeatedly. No matter how terrible the world around us seems, we must never forget that our God and His Word are righteous. I often, when I think of the evil in this world, I'm reminded of the line from the old hymn, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And he is a righteous and faithful ruler. We need to pray that Christians, especially those in the midst of suffering, be rooted in the unshakable truth that their God is righteous and faithful. Now looking at verse 139, we move to our second point. We need to pray that Christians would know that this righteous God is with them in the context of their suffering in this world. We begin with the solid foundation that God is righteous and faithful. But we must also be honest about the real struggles that are faced in this broken world. Coming out of verses 137 and 138, you get the impression that maybe everything is going to be perfect. God is righteous. His rules are right. And he acts in all faithfulness. Now everything's going to be easy and perfect in our lives. But that's not what we see. It's not what we experience, especially those who are facing persecution. Life is hard. Even in the relative comfort and safety of this church in this country, we do suffer. And especially around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ suffer in ways that are almost impossible for us to even wrap our minds around. But what a comfort and a relief it is that Scripture is honest with us about the struggles we will face. Everything is not portrayed through idyllic rose-colored glasses. There will be suffering, and in that suffering we can still know that our God is righteous. More than that, we have a Savior, as we've sung of this morning, that understands suffering in our catechism. We reflected on Christ's suffering, and we know from our study in Hebrews that he is the high priest that sympathizes with us in our weakness. God understands suffering and clearly acknowledges that we face suffering in this life. Picking up at verse 139, we see how this current world is broken. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Another rendering that I came across of this passage in my study says it like this, my concern has annihilated me. When we see that the world around us is not right in so many ways, it can be earth-shattering news. We start with the picture of God being good and righteous and faithful, but then we see people forget his right rules and his perfect words, and we are consumed 
How quickly we see that once perfect creation has been profoundly damaged by sin. Yet our God is righteous. Our God is righteous in the midst of our sin. It's a shocking turn that we see going back and forth here in this passage. God's righteousness and the brokenness of this fallen world. Verse 40, verse 140 reminds us that God's promises are well tried. And that as his servants, we should love them. Uh, It's been a couple months ago now, but Brandon... Uh, gave us a sermon that was so encouraging on how the promises of God bring hope in the life of Christians. If you weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to go back to our website and listen to that. could spend a ton of time now seeing how we are encouraged by the promises of God. But for now, let's just suffice it to say, as the psalmist does here, his promises are well tried. Though Christians walk through many painful things, we always see that God is faithful in all his promises. We must pray that as Christians around the world suffer, they will never lose sight of God's faithfulness displayed through his well-tried promises. Verse 141, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Do you sometimes feel small and despised? Do you think that your brothers facing persecution around the world feel small and despised? Even if they're not facing physical harm or the threat of death, picture how small and despised so many feel being in extreme poverty, not knowing where their next meal might come from. We must pray that our identity that the identity of Christians around the world would be, be forever found in the true word of God. Pray that no matter what the world tells them or how they feel, that they might never forget what God says about them in his perfect and true law. We touched on this a little bit already, but again in verse 142, we see that God's righteousness is forever. We must not grow weary of praying for those who have suffered over long periods of time. We must pray that they will be reminded that God is righteous forever. That through their trials and struggles that seem to be never-ending, they are but light and momentary, considering the eternal glory of our God who is righteous forever. Verse 143. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. This is the reality of our world. Trouble and anguish. It's not trouble and anguish might find us out, may find us out. Trouble and anguish find us out. On this side of glory, we were never promised an easy life, free from hardships or free from pain. And this verse does not tell us that knowing the commandments of God will keep us from trouble and anguish. 
It tells us that even in the midst of trouble and anguish, we can delight in the commandments of our righteous and faithful God. It's it's an easy thing to say, delight in the commandments of God in the midst of trouble and anguish, but it's a hard thing to practice, and I can only assume that it's even harder for those facing severe persecution. I think there are many ways that God works through persecution in our lives and ways that we can see that and take delight in it based on what we know from his word. I could probably spend the rest of the day talking about different ways that we can see that. But I just want to focus on three ways right now that we can delight in the commandments of God and delight that he is righteous and faithful. First, we know that God uses suffering and trials to sanctify us. You think of Romans 5 or James 1, rejoicing in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The familiar passage in James, counted all joy My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We need to pray that God will show suffering Christians small glimpses of how he's using their suffering for their own sanctification and growth in him. Is, is that enough encouragement for when we deal with suffering? To know and believe that suffering is sanctifying? It, it helps, and it can be an encouragement, but when we're under the weight of that suffering, I think it's hard for us to see this is, this is going to be good for me at some point. We may know it from the Word, but it's hard for us to believe I want to look at some more things that we can take encouragement from, even if we don't see the benefit of the sanctification in our lives. We can see that through suffering, through persecution, that God is working all things for His glory. Joel Beakey, in his book, Taking Hold of God, Reformed and Puritan Perspectives on Prayer, shares the story of David Brainerd, a missionary to the Native Americans in the mid-1600s. Brainerd suffered from depression and severe hardship in his life and work. He died in his 20s after a long battle with tuberculosis. In all that difficulty, he was sustained by his love for the glory of God. Brainerd wrote, I felt my soul rejoice that God is unchangeably happy and glorious and that He will be glorified whatever becomes of His creatures. Through delighting in God's Word, may we learn to view suffering as something that can bring glory to God, just as David Brainerd did. 
May we come to a place where we see how God can be glorified through our lives and even through our death, our deaths. May our love for God and His glory spur us on to pray for our global church family. I pray that God will give us a heart that longs to pray for others, as David Brainerd did. He once wrote this in his journal. I saw that God is the only soul-satisfying portion, and I really found satisfaction in Him. My soul was much enlarged in sweet intercession for my fellow men everywhere and for my Christian friends in particular in distant places. May our motivation to pray for the persecuted church not come from a sense of obligation or a sense of dread at the utter horror of what they face. But let us find our only satisfaction in God and have that be our motivation to launch into sweet intercession for others. I love that phrase. It can be depressing praying for the persecuted church, but to see it as sweet intercession. Let me just read that from David Brainerd again. I saw that God is the only soul-satisfying portion, and I really found satisfaction in him. My soul was much enlarged in sweet intercession for my fellow men everywhere and for my Christian friends in particular in distant places. Third, as our suffering brings glory to God, may it be used for the spread of the gospel among the nations so that many others might come to know God and glorify Him through their lives as well. By the end of 1646, David Brainerd's illness was so severe that he could do little more than pray. If we are honest with ourselves, even in full health, anything we can do is less effective than pray. As he neared death, Brainerd recorded this prayer. Prayer was now wholly turned into praise. And I could do little else but try to adore and bless the living God. The wonders of his grace displayed in gathering to himself a church among the poor Indians. Here were the subject matter of my meditation and the occasion of exciting my soul to praise and bless his name. I could only rejoice that God had done the work himself and that none in heaven or earth might pretend to share the honor of it with him. I could only be glad that God's declarative glory was advanced by the conversion of these souls and that it was to the enlargement of his kingdom in the world. Oh, that he might be adored and praised by all his intelligent creatures to the utmost of their powers and capacities. Let us so pray that through persecution and suffering, God would bring many people into his kingdom that they might glorify him and enjoy him forever.
So we've seen ways that we can delight in God's word, even in the midst of trouble and anguish. We've looked at how God uses it for our sanctification, how he can use it for his own glory, how he can use suffering and persecution for the spread of the gospel. This brings us to our final verse of the stanza and our final point in our outline. A Christian's hope in trouble and anguish. Look with me at verse 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. may seem like we've already covered this point, and in some ways we have. Similar phrases are the refrain of this stanza. We see almost the same statement in verses 137 and 142, where we already looked at, Righteous are you, Lord, and right are your rules. In 142, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. And then 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Is this just repetition for the sake of repetition? Let's look at it a little more closely. In verse 137, we see a statement about God followed by an affirmation that his rules are right. Righteous are you, O Lord, a statement about God. And then the affirmation, and right are your rules. Likewise, in verse 142, another statement about God's righteousness being righteous forever and an affirmation that his law is true. Finally, in verse 144, we see the pattern change. We again have a statement that God's testimonies are righteous forever. But instead of simply affirming that this is true, like is done in verse 137 and 142, we see something quite different. We find an earnest request being made. In fact, it's the only request being made in this stanza. The only time that the psalmist actually asks for something. Look at it with me. Give me understanding that I may live. It is good and right that we come to know about God through his word. It is even better that we affirm that his rules are right and his law is true. But is that enough? Is it enough to just know about God and acknowledge that what he says is true? Is that all that we should pray for, for ourselves, for the church around the world? Is it enough to pray that Bibles will be translated into every language? Is it enough to pray that everyone around the world would have access to their own physical copy of God's word? Is it enough to pray that suffering people will find comfort and delight by remembering God's precepts? Is it enough to pray for and support missionaries who strive and labor to bring the word of God to the nations? We love as a church and support the work of Bible translation. This church supports and prays for Kyle and Hannah Davis, working with Bible Translation Fellowship. In about two hours from now, I'm going to be driving to the airport and picking up a student from Tennant who works in South Africa uh, for Wycliffe translating Bibles. We love the work of Bible translation. 
And we are passionate about spreading the word of God to all the nations. But is that alone enough? In the face of persecution, is just knowing about the word of God enough? The Bible itself cannot save anyone. The Bible itself cannot sustain anyone in the face of severe suffering that we find in this world. It's not some magic book of spells or words that we can read and we pick it up when we feel bad. Flip to a page and read a verse and all of a sudden everything is made right. As the psalmist does here, we must Cry out to God that He will give understanding that we might live. We cannot simply cling to a Bible apart from the God of the Bible. Apart from the sovereign work of God the Father, accomplished through the life and death of His Son, Jesus Christ, and established in us through the Holy Spirit, we have no hope. Christians suffering around the world have no hope. John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion says this in talking about the power of Scripture on its own. God's law is thus a dead letter which kills those who follow it when it is separated from the grace of Christ. And when it merely sounds in our ears without touching our hearts. If, however, by God's Spirit, it is vividly impressed on the will, and if it conveys Jesus Christ to us, it is the word of life, converting souls and giving wisdom to the humble. We must fervently pray. That God would work by His Spirit through His Word to bring understanding to the darkened and lost hearts and minds of helpless sinners that they might have life in Christ. It is only being found in Jesus Christ and the life that He brings us that we have hope. It is only in Christ that we can truly delight and rejoice in the midst of trouble and anguish. When we pray for the persecuted church, we pray that they will have a firm foundation based on the character of God revealed through His Word. We pray that they will find comfort and delight in the midst of trouble and anguish by knowing that suffering is used for sanctification and that God is glorified in us and that He works through us to bring others to a knowledge of Him. We must also pray that God will give them understanding of what Christ did for them on the cross so that they might live. May God cause us, may God cause our brothers and sisters around the world to know the grace of Christ so that the Bible becomes the word of life to them, converting their souls so that the great God, our great God, might receive all glory, 
and honor and praise forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for the work that you have done on our behalf through Christ. We recognize that simply a knowledge of your word and a knowledge of you does not save us, but that you must work in our lives and our hearts to give us the understanding that leads to life. We pray now for our brothers and sisters around the world. Our hearts are grieved by the things that we hear, about the ways that they are persecuted, about the effects of sin, the work of the devil in this world, working against your church. But we are so encouraged to know that you are righteous and you are faithful. We pray that you would encourage our brothers and sisters with that truth. Remind them of who you are. Remind them of what you have done for them on the cross. As we turn now to the Lord's table, use this to remind us of what Christ did for us. We are so prone to be forgetful. Remind us that you are righteous and faithful and that your righteousness is worked out in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. It's in the precious and most glorious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.